Okay, we're going to get started. Everybody can grab their seat. Uh, my name is Scott Alderman. I'm the Administrative Director of the Program in Narrative Medicine, and welcome to uh, Rounds for November. Uh, before we begin, I just want to do a few bit uh, of housekeeping. Um, next week, on Tuesday the 12th, we're presenting the 20th anniversary of the film Philadelphia. And you can grab a flyer on the way out. We have Jonathan Demme coming, uh, performance by the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater, Michael Gottlieb, Jerry Friedland, um, Nellie Herman. Not me. <laughs> oh, Nellie Herman. Not me, Mark. Oh, and Mark Doty. And Nellie Herman. Uh, so uh, please come join us if, uh, if you can. Uh, next month in December, we have uh, Dr. Arthur Kleinman is going to be doing rounds. In February, the photographer Amy Arbus. Uh, in March, Suzanne Cahillan, the author. Uh, April will be the graphic novelist David Small. And in May, uh, the trauma specialist Jack Saul. So that's the rest of our rounds uh, for the season. You better move it up to twice a month. We know. Um, with that, I'm going to introduce the associate director of the uh, program in narrative medicine, Morris Spiegel. We'll introduce our speaker. So, it's a great pleasure to introduce Rachel Adams to you. Um, Rachel has written widely, repeatedly doing groundbreaking work. Her first book was called Sideshow USA, Freaks and the American Cultural Imagination, and it has become really a standard go-to text in its field. She co-edited the Masculinity Studies Reader um, and a critical edition of Kate Chopin's The Awakening. And then she went on to write Continental Divides, Remapping the Cultures of North America, which is another groundbreaking book. In recent years, Rachel's academic interests have turned to disability studies, a field she had explored in her first book on freak shows. And in a few short years, she has become one of the two or three leading figures in the field. She is the conceiver and director of the Future of Disability Studies Project, where she brings outstanding writers, scholars, filmmakers, and others working in this field together to learn from one another, to build community, and to nourish this robust movement. Her articles have appeared in journals such as American Literature, Camera Obscura, GLQ, Yale Journal of Criticism. She has also written for the New York Times, Salon, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Times of London, and Gastronomica. <laughs> Rachel not only writes about food and teaches amazing courses on it, but she is a fantastic pastry chef. In, in 2010, she was the recipient of the Lenfest Distinguished Columbia Faculty Award. And today she will read to us from and discuss her new book, Raising Henry, a memoir of motherhood, disability, and discovery about which I will, I will say nothing except to quote Jerome Grootman in his, you know, laudatory um, article on the book in the New York Review of Books, uh, in which he found himself, in his words, elevated by her insights and her stark honesty. So here is Rachel Adams. She is a dear friend and inspiration, a person of remarkable character, as you will soon hear. Um, can you hear me? Um, I'm especially pleased to be here 
at the medical school because this book really got its start in a seminar on narrative genetics, which was organized by two narrative medicine faculty, Sayantani Dasgupta and Marsha Hurst. And Mora was actually the person who told me about the, the seminar. It was there that I first felt authorized to start writing about my own experiences, and I realized that they might have something to teach to others. So I want to thank my colleagues in narrative medicine for inviting me here and to Scott Alderman for organizing this event. Thank you so much. So this book, I'm, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the book and then read from a few places. This represents a very different kind of writing for me. So I spent my career writing for an academic audience. And I'd written about texts and images and people who were mostly dead. If they weren't dead, they weren't reading what I was writing anyway. So it's been a new experience to write about myself and my family. It involved a certain amount of courage and a lot of ignorance, because it's only now that the book is published that I'm realizing what it means to have complete strangers know all sorts of intimate things about my life. And it's also involved retraining myself <coughs> as a writer. So I've had to learn the language and customs of writing for a broad public rather than just an audience of other professors. And that has been um, a very important part of the journey. So the book, um, it, the most simple way to describe the book is that it's the story of the first three years in the life of my son Henry, who has Down syndrome. Um, but the discovery part of the title is also about an intellectual journey. So I'd like to describe this project as um, a critical memoir, because what I try to do here is to interweave my own story with some more polemical discussions of all sorts of social and political debates that are raised by my particular experience of disability. So to sort of telescope in and out between my particular experiences and then um, efforts to make meaning of them. So I talk about the meaning of genetic data and prenatal testing, um, medical training, the medicalization of disability, that's something I would love to talk about more here with this audience, um, social services, inclusive education, cultural attitudes towards people with disabilities, a whole host of things. Um, and I, I like to think of this method as a kind of criticism by stealth. So I, I tried to write the book, and um, you can judge for yourself um, if you want to read it, um, so that there weren't obvious parts you could skip over where you know, this is the teaching moment, that you would sort of find yourself immersed in these moments as they came up through the story. Um, I realized this after hearing, there's a book that's very, very important to me that I, I actually talk about in this, um, in my own book, which is Michael Barabay's Life as We Know It. Um, Michael Barabay is also a, a literary critic, and um, he also has a son with Down syndrome who was born about I think he's 21 now. And so when I was in graduate school, he published a, a memoir about his son. It's part memoir, and then there's all kinds of excursions into um, political philosophy and, and 
social and historical debates. And so I heard as I joined this community of um, families and supporters of people with Down syndrome, they would say, oh, you know, I like that book, but um, I like the story, but then I, I have to keep putting it down because I came to these boring parts about um, Wittgenstein, or so um, John Rawls. So I, I realized that I had to try to make these things more integral to the story I was telling. So there was, there was nowhere where you could just stop and put the book down. Um, now a lot of the story of my intellectual journey centers on my return to the study of disability. So most people in disability studies come into it um, having had some life experience with disability. And I, I tend to do a lot of things in life backwards. So, um, so as Maura said, six years before Henry was born, I published a book about freak shows. And I had spent a lot of years um, researching and writing about disability. But as soon as that book was done, I really fled from that topic. I was worried that it wasn't serious enough for a tenure committee and for various reasons. I, I put it down. And I had literally just finished this book on something completely different. Um, like I sent it off on a Thursday, and then my son was born on Monday morning. And then a few minutes after that, I'll read you this section. I found out he had Down syndrome. And as I struggled to make sense of what had happened to us, I returned to disability studies, but with an entirely new set of investments. So my memoir is in part about how disability studies helped me to understand my son, but more importantly, how um, Henry transformed my understanding of what disability studies is and what it can do. Um, so I, I think I'll stop there and I'll just let the book speak for itself. So the place I always need to begin um, is with Henry's arrival into our life. So the book doesn't begin right here. Um, I did, I actually, in addition to the, the narrative genetics seminar, I took this writing class um, when I was starting to conceive this book. And they said, you know, oh, oh no, you can never start at the beginning of your story. So there's a few pages where I start elsewhere. And this is really um, what I, you know, chronologically, this is the beginning of the story. So um, this is a chapter called Arrival. There are no photographs of that day in the labor and delivery room where I first held my new son. When his older brother Noah was born, I'd started taking pictures the minute I could sit up, finding his scrawny limbs and misshapen red face indescribably beautiful. Henry had the same scaly newborn feet and shock of dark hair, but there was something about him that didn't quite make sense to me. Or perhaps I knew all too well what I was seeing, and neither my husband John nor I had made any move to pick up the camera. I felt a tremendous sense of calm. This after the bright lights, the shouts of doctors and nurses, pricking needles, hands groping roughly inside of me, the primordial screams of some other woman, but it must have been me, a searing pain, the hot liquid gush of birth, the sharper, more localized pain of being stitched back together. The resident who presided over the birth was an implausibly young man I had never seen before. 
When it was over, he spent half an hour between my legs, repairing the most intimate parts of my body. The birth had happened so fast, he said the tearing was like road burn. Hard to sew up, but quick to heal. He finished what he was doing and stepped back to survey his work. Concluding that it was good enough, he told me the stitches would fall out within a few weeks and left the room. He must have known, but he didn't show it. He didn't say anything about it to me, and I never saw him again. I guess he thought his work was done once the baby was delivered. Breaking the news would be someone else's job. In the stillness that followed, a nurse kept moving the baby to different positions, trying to get him to latch onto my breast. His mouth opened and closed weakly. No sound came out. The room was completely quiet and filled with watery winter sunlight. A pediatrician arrived. She introduced herself and told us she was going to examine our baby. She spread him on a heated table and turned her back. A few minutes later, she wrapped him up and handed him back to me. I was called here because your baby has features consistent with Down syndrome, she said. He's pink and he looks healthy, but we're going to have to take him back to the NICU and run some tests to make sure his heart is functioning properly. The world should have stopped. I know this is a lot to take in. Do you have any questions for me? Of course I had questions. Couldn't you give me just a few more minutes to imagine that my baby is perfect? Isn't every parent entitled to believe that anything is possible for her new child? Why were you in such a hurry to snatch away my fantasy? How could this be happening? I shook my head. I'll be back later and we can talk more then, she said kindly. She let John hold our baby for a few more minutes. Then she placed him in a wheeled cart and pushed him out of the room. After she left, the room was still quiet and sunny. I still felt calm. Somewhere beneath the surface, I knew that fear, grief, and rage were roiling, but I was wrapped in a numbing blanket of hormones that invited my body to relax, even as my mind started to race. Um, and then I'm just gonna read a little bit from the end of this chapter. There's a, a long interlude about <coughs> my husband, which I'm gonna skip over. Um, sometimes he's, in the audience, when I say that. <laughs> That's a little bit of feeling about the whole book. Um, John heard what the doctor had said about Henry, and he wasn't crying. He gazed at our new son with the same look of wonder and curiosity that I remembered from his first pictures with Noah. He held Henry just as gently. The finger that caressed Henry's cheek was no less loving than it had been for our first baby. I looked at John looking at Henry and tried to draw from his strength. It helped that regardless of what my mind was thinking, the hormones kept my body in a state of euphoric relaxation. My hormonal calm had vanished by the time I was settled in a grim little room in the maternity ward. John had gone home to take care of Noah, who at 22 months, was little more than a baby himself. In the rooms around me, other families were getting to know their new babies. Fathers walked the halls talking on cell phones. Visitors strolled by my open door carrying balloons and flowers. 
Nurses and orderlies bustled. It was Christmas Eve. The napkin that came with my gray meatloaf had a wreath on it. John came back with Noah in tow. They'd had a terrible time getting to the hospital and it was late. The subway broke down and everyone had to get off. So John lugged Noah and his stroller onto a crowded bus that took them the rest of the way. Noah expressed brief interest in my pajamas, which were pink with donuts on them, and in the wheelchair I was supposed to use for getting around. Then he got impatient and it was time for them to leave. I felt a spasm of panic. John handed me a white paper bag. I brought you cake. His face fell. Almost everything is closed. It's the only cake I could find. It's Christmas and I don't want to leave you alone. It's okay, I lied. You go home and take care of Noah. I'll be fine. I have to stay here with our baby. After they left, I couldn't stop crying. I'd like to say I cried because I was worried about the baby upstairs in the NICU, but I didn't feel much of anything for him. I was mourning the loss of the son I thought I was going to have and the family I imagined we would be. Now, um, the next section I'm going to read, I'll just introduce by saying that one of the things that happens when your child is born with a disability is that he is immediately medicalized, immediately swept up <coughs> in the world of doctors and diagnoses and prognosis. Um, and so parents have to learn, so we didn't know our son aside from a diagnosis. They, they took him away from us. So one of the lessons we had to learn was how to recognize our child as separate from the diagnosis and all of the things that people were telling us about it. Um, and the other thing that we learned is that we often knew what was best for him, which was sometimes different from what doctors and experts were telling us. Um, and this was something that was very hard for me. Uh, I'm someone who always likes to do what I'm told, and I especially like the advice of experts. And so um, to realize that the experts might not always have my child's best interests. Well, not that they didn't have it at heart, but that they might not always know what was ideal for him was a part of my education. So, um, so this is a section about um, his, the end of our stay in the hospital and his homecoming, which was, well, you'll see what there was a sort of defining feature of that. So this chapter is called um, The Feeding Tube, and I'm gonna read you a few pieces of this. When Henry was five days old, we were told that he was ready to go home. The doctors felt that his heart condition required no immediate treatment. Aside from weakness, he had no other medical complications. If he turns blue, our nurse from the NICU told us, not very reassuringly, take him to the emergency room right away. Since he could still manage to drink only a few milligrams of formula at a time, Henry would have to come home with his feeding tube. To our dismay, John and I were told we would need to learn how to insert and remove it ourselves. Nobody knew how long Henry would need the tube, and it had to be replaced every few days. The day before Henry was scheduled to leave the hospital, 
John and I met our nurse in the NICU for a lesson. She showed us how to measure a piece of tubing that could stretch from his ear to his stomach and cut it to size. Then, I'm sure this is all obvious to doctors in the room, she trimmed a broad, flat sheet of tape to fit the space between his ear and his nose. This would protect his skin from a second piece of tape, this one impossibly thin and sticky that would affix the tube to his face. When all the pieces were ready, we had to quickly thread the tube into one nostril, through the hole in the back of his nasal cavity, down his throat, into his stomach. Once it was in place, we were to attach a syringe to his loose end and pump it gently while listening to his abdomen with a stethoscope. If we heard a puff of air, we would know it was in the right place and feeding could begin. The nurse made all of this look easy, completing the whole process within less than a minute. Now you try it, she said, handing me the tape and a roll of tubing. I hesitated before deciding that John should go first. As a child, John spent a lot of time helping out in the family veterinary clinic. His experiences made him less squeamish about the body than most people, but they weren't much good in the NICU. Getting the tube to go down the back of Henry's nose wasn't as simple as it looked. The tube wanted to point straight back, but it had to be guided firmly downward. John poked around in Henry's nose again and again, trying to find an opening. We were told that none of this was painful, but Henry's reaction indicated otherwise. He turned a deep red, screwed up his face, and mewed hoarsely. His mouth opened and closed with rage. The more he squirmed, the harder it was to guide the tube into the appropriate passage. It was also hard to know when the tube had reached its destination. Was it too short, resting uselessly <coughs> somewhere in his esophagus? Was it too long? poking some organ beneath his tiny stomach. The only way to tell was by listening for the puff of air coming from the syringe. And this seemed like a job meant for an octopus. One hand had to elevate the syringe above the feeding tube, which was attached to a pole at the side of Henry's crib, while using a few fingers to give it a pump. The other had to keep the stethoscope in place on the wriggling baby's stomach. It would have been useful to have at least two more hands to hold Henry down while all of this was happening. Don't worry, the nurse said, as she watched us practicing nervously. I've never seen anyone put a tube into the lungs by mistake. It hadn't even occurred to us that the tube could go into his lungs. Now we had something else to worry about. My heart sank. The truth was, I didn't want to take Henry back to our apartment. I wish she could stay in the hospital where other people, professionals with confidence and training, would take care of them. I wish she could go anywhere other than our home, where I could still wake up and, for a few sleep-blurred seconds, forget that he existed. The tube would be the bane of our existence. For the first weeks of Henry's, for the first weeks of Henry's life, in his book, Michael Barabay describes how he and his wife Janet became pros at changing Jamie's feeding tube. In their determination to wean him off it, they would have contests to see who could get him to drink the most milk from a bottle. John and I never did become experts, and I lacked the good humor to turn our struggles into a friendly competition. The tape that lay neat and flat on Henry's cheek at the hospital 
quickly got dirty and puckered. The tube itself was constantly getting tangled around his hands and neck. The more active he became, the more likely he was to pull it out of his nose, meaning we had to go through the whole dreadful process of inserting it all over again. And in our eagerness to pump him full of nutrients, we were constantly overfilling his feeding syringe. When this happened, the liquid would drain slowly down the tube until his stomach was full. At that point, it would start to leak back up the tube, leaving him soaking in a pool of milk. Okay, I'm just gonna read one more piece from this chapter. So um, what happens in the interim is that we had this, so we had no family and no one to help us, so we had arranged to have a baby nurse to help us for a short time after Henry was born. And um, she turned out to be this magical woman named Rosalind, who just had the perfect intuition about um, when we wanted her to be present and when she should fade to the background. She was incredibly mild-mannered. She didn't seem to sleep the entire time. We ended up, we were supposed to have her for a week, and at the end of every week, my husband and I would start fighting and hating each other. We realized it was because we were anticipating Rosalind leaving. So we begged her, would you please stay for another week? And um, she would go home for one night, and then she'd come back, and she didn't seem to sleep at all when she was. She sat in a chair for a week at a time trying to feed our baby. Um, and she was very mild-mannered. She. This was... Um, <clears throat> the season of the, the uh, Democratic primaries, for the, the election where um, Barack Obama ended up being elected. So she loved to watch the debates on TV, but she was very mild-mannered. She sort of, John Edwards was her favorite. She was a little skeptical about Barack Obama, but um, that, that leads into this section. So I'm saying how she was mild-mannered, although somewhat opinionated about uh, politics, but the only thing Rosalind did have strong feelings about was the feeding tube. In the hospital in Trinidad, we would feed a baby like Henry with the bottle, even if it took us an hour, she clucked. A tube is for babies who are small, small, not for a big, strong boy like this. The first time the tube needed to be changed, we used the dining room table as a makeshift operating theater. We decided that Henry would lie on a changing pad, surrounded by all of the necessary equipment. We brought a lamp in from the bedroom to give us extra light and pushed the chairs against the wall. Once we had everything set up, the procedure went very differently than it had in the hospital, where we had a nurse to guide us through our difficulties. Here, we were on our own. As John fumbled with the tubing, Henry wriggled furiously, his entire body turning an angry red color. His mouth opened and shut, and feeble, hoarse sounds came out. I stood nervously behind John, giving suggestions in a loud voice, until he snapped at me and asked if I wanted to do it myself. Fine, I said heatedly, knowing I was no more qualified to do this than he was. I don't remember which of us finally got the tube down Henry's throat. All I know is that it seemed to take us forever to get it in place. His nasal cavity seemed like it had been rearranged since the hospital, and it was impossible to tell whether we had actually managed to get the tube into his stomach. He moved his head from side to side as we struggled to stick the upper end to his cheek, 
wasting sheet after sheet of tape. Throughout the whole process, Rosalind hovered in the background, muttering softly under her breath. Although she didn't say much, we could feel her disapproval. When it was over, she swept Henry into her arms as if to save him from us. You didn't like that at all, did you? She said as she comforted him. We're going to get rid of that nasty tube. We're going to drink all of our milk from a bottle. And um, she did. As I said, she, she sat up with him for about three weeks and um, would feed him patiently. Sometimes it would take two and a half. He was supposed to eat every three hours. And sometimes it would take two and a half hours for him to drink the bottle. And then she would start all over again. So um, I, I won't read you the end of the, the chapter, but as you can imagine, we eventually we took out the, the feeding tube. And still, to this day, when I see him suck down a glass of milk, I think of Rosalind, and I'm very grateful to her. Um, now, another aspect of having a baby with a disability is that they very quickly get caught up in the early intervention system, which I'm sure some of you know, but it's it's there to support children ages birth to age three by giving them therapy and educating their families about how best to care for them. And in New York, um, particularly at the time that Henry was born, early intervention was a phenomenal resource. It's, um, it's a federal program, but it's administered by states, so it varies dramatically. And New York at the time had one of the best early intervention programs. So it's um, administered regardless of income. So it's remarkably democratic, and it is shown to make a tremendous difference in future development. So it's a wonderful investment, and these services are slowly being eviscerated by budget cuts. So there's no one who's trying to wipe out the program, but a baby born today just is not um, offered the resources that we had. So, um, so it, it's a very important um, and fragile resource, and it was for us. Um, but the other thing is that this was something of a shock to us, given our previous life. So um, suddenly, all kinds of people were coming to our home to evaluate our child, coming and going, um, expecting us to follow through and being involved in homework. Um, I am someone who always worked at home. I like to work in my pajamas and have a lot of control over my space and my time. And suddenly, there was this um, there was a schedule, and there were people that I was um, I, I was beholden to. So sometimes I was just so frustrated I wanted to scream. Um, but I also saw how important this was, and with time, I really came to love the therapists, and I learned so much from them, and I now truly believe that every new parent should have early intervention, that the, a lot of what these therapists are teaching us is just simple common sense about how to aid a child's development. and so. Um, they were such a remarkable part of our life, and there, there's a lot of praise for them. I, that, I'm not going to read that part. I, I'm going to read you just a, a short, um, funny piece about how early intervention came into our lives. Early intervention. 
intervention starts with a series of evaluations by physical, occupational, and feeding therapists, a special educator, and a social worker. Our first evaluation was like something out of a slapstick comedy. It was scheduled for a morning when Noah was home from daycare. In the weeks since Henry's birth, Noah had decided he wasn't happy about the presence of this strange new infant and his companion, Rosalind. From his two-year-old perspective, she must have seemed as permanent as his baby brother. Noah hadn't taken his unhappiness out on Henry, whom he hardly deigned to acknowledge. Instead, he had rejected all other outsiders. It was as if, having already allowed Rosalind and Henry to invade our lives, he was determined to prevent anyone else from coming in, even temporarily. His resistance took unpredictable forms, but it always involved behavior disruptive enough to derail all social interaction. <clears throat> when friends came over, he would throw himself into violent tantrums, make urgent and constant demands for food and drink, or insist that we hide with him in another room until the guests went away. <laughs> After too many visits ended in disaster, we had temporarily stopped inviting people to our apartment. I was worried about how Noah would respond to the evaluator. I knew I should have rescheduled the appointment as soon as I realized that he would be home. But I was in a hurry to get the assessments over with so that Henry's services could begin. When the therapist arrived, I opened the door with a sick feeling. No sooner had she come into the apartment than Noah began to whine and fuss for my full attention. His complaints quickly escalated into loud shrieks. As we sat down to go through a family questionnaire, Noah started to jump on the furniture, pulling at my hair and clothes. The therapist spread Henry on a blanket on the floor, as far from Noah's frenzied acrobatics as possible. It was hard to pay attention to what she was doing with a crazed toddler trying to climb my leg, and at first I didn't notice when she started to cough and rub her eyes. Do you have any pets? I shook my head. Did an animal ever live in this apartment? Not that I know of because I'm severely allergic. She began to grope in her bag, spilling papers and therapy tools onto the floor. I must have left my inhaler in the car. She was wheezing and seemed panicked. Noah tucked in my arm, screaming, Mommy, 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 I want you to come play in my room. I want that lady to go. I can't breathe, she gasped, her eyes red and streaming. I think it's the rug. An animal must have been on the rug. I had seen the rug delivered, brand new, still encased in a plastic sheet. I knew no animal had ever touched it, but this was no time for arguments. Let's get you away from it, I suggested, attempting to guide her into the kitchen while carrying Noah, who was kicking and twisting wildly, heavy as a bag of cement. Stray Cheerios left over from breakfast crunched underfoot as I shoved him into the high chair and poured half a box of cookies onto the tray. I opened the window, and the therapist pressed her face to the screen, gasping as she inhaled the frigid January air. I want that lady to go. Go away, lady, Noah cried. After a few more breaths, she wiped her eyes and declared herself recovered enough to return to Henry, who was still lying placidly on his blanket in the living room. When I went back to check on her a few minutes later, she blew her nose, coughed wetly, and said she had everything she needed. It seemed like she had barely looked at Henry. 
I couldn't imagine that this was the most thorough evaluation she had ever completed. I walked her to the door, telling her how sorry I was, although I'm not sure what for. The air quality in my apartment, my dirty living room rug, that I had a baby who required her to be there at all. I shut the door behind her and took a deep breath. I could hear Noah calling from the kitchen where he was still a captain in his high chair. It was only 9.30 a.m. Um, okay, I'm just gonna read one more piece. Maura alluded to my love of pastry. So there is, as you, you may have noticed in the first section where it ends with um, the, the sad piece of cake on Christmas. Um, cake is sort of a running um, presence in this book. And so this is just a very short chapter called Cake that I, I read to you where I explain why cake is important to me. John and I don't live in the kind of world where people say that Henry was sent to us for a reason. My mother-in-law, Hugh Ellen, does. In late summer, she started planning our holiday visit to Georgia. We would travel there a few days before Christmas and stay through her birthday on December 27th. She called every few days to let us know how excited she was. She and all the people she ran into at the local Kroger, the mall, and church, who just couldn't wait to meet Henry. She was planning to throw him a big birthday party where she could introduce him to her family and friends. It meant a lot to me that Hugh Ellen had been madly in love with Henry ever since that first day she held him in the NICU. She continued to treat him as if he were just as smart and capable as her other grandchildren. In fact, neither side of our family seemed to have any trouble appreciating Henry. Still, most of the appreciation had happened at a distance or during visits on our own turf. This was the first time we would travel with Henry to an entirely new setting, one where I've never felt fully comfortable myself. In my in-laws world, I was pretty sure there were still people who understood disabilities as signs from God. Sometimes they were seen as signals of a person's special forbearance or goodness. And sometimes they were lessons in some charitable virtue like patience, acceptance, or humility. I have read plenty of websites, blogs, and memoirs whose authors claimed that people with Down syndrome were angels or that God had singled out their families for the special mission of raising a child with a disability. I could accept that there are many different ways to make sense of disability. But this one seemed both grandiose and misguided. To call someone an angel is to risk losing sight of the complexities that make him the person he is, only some of which have to do with Down syndrome. I didn't know what I would do if someone spoke to me about Henry in that way. When the day of our trip finally rolled around, Henry had a bad cold. Despite my careful planning, the morning of our departure was chaotic. We raced around the apartment trying to get everyone dressed, taking out the garbage and stuffing last minute additions into our suitcases. We could tell Henry felt awful. He was usually cheerful and easygoing, but that morning he was cranky and refused to let us put him down. His eyes were wet and swollen, and no matter how often we wiped his runny nose, he scrubbed at it until his face was slick with snot. During the flight, he lay draped over John's shoulder half asleep in a pool of drool and mucus. 
Every so often, he would raise his head to cry weakly, then slump back down with exhaustion. Things didn't improve when we got to Georgia. Henry was miserable for much of the visit. His nose continued to run, and he had a fever. Normally, he loved new places and people, but his sickness made him anxious and grumpy. After waiting for months to cuddle with her youngest grandson, Hugh Ellen was rebuffed. Henry didn't want to be held by anyone except me or John, and he cried and fussed whenever I tried to leave the room. On the night before the party, I made Henry's birthday cake. Call me crazy, but one of the reasons I wanted children was so that I could bake them birthday cakes. I love cake. I love its frivolity and decadence. I love the drawn-out process of baking and cooling, filling, and icing. I love the way a frosted cake sits there like a blank canvas full of potential as it waits to be decked out with its final embellishments. I love the moment after the first cut when I draw out a slice that reveals the contrast of color and texture inside. I love the way cake tastes, the sweet dry crumb moistened by the frosting's cool smoothness. My cakes are always meant for an audience, and while I bake and decorate, I imagine other people eating them. I love the fact that cake has no other purpose than to make people happy, to lend sweetness and color to a festive moment. Best of all, I love the leftover piece of cake to be eaten, maybe with the last of the ice cream, in the quiet after the party is over and the dishes washed and put away. I decided to make Henry a white almond cake since Noah didn't like chocolate. Because I never use a timer, my baking relies a lot on smell and sight. Before checking on a baking cake, you need to make sure it's firm enough to withstand the colder air that comes in when the oven door is opened. I have good instincts and hardly ever make a mistake, but I hadn't used Hugh Ellen's oven before. This cake fell when I tried to see if it was done the center collapsing into a soggy, wrinkled crater. Hugh Ellen clucked with disappointment, but I thought it could be saved. Once I spread the layers with vanilla custard and frosted it with whipped cream, the damage was hardly noticeable. I decorated the top with clowns and balloons and knew that nobody would notice if the cake was a bit dense in the middle. By the morning of the party, Henry was feeling better and he seemed to be adjusting to the new space he let Hugh Ellen hold him and played happily with his rubber giraffe. Still, I could feel myself getting tense as the guests started to arrive. The front hall echoed with cheery cries of, Hey, y'all! I'm still practicing that. I found myself, it's, it's very foreign to me, I found myself clasped in energetic hugs, my head pressed against warm, perfumey holiday sweaters and freshly washed hair. Henry smiled at the commotion, pushing a ball around the living room rug. The guests cooed appreciatively, and he cooed back, delighted by the attention. One of John's cousins came in with his wife and daughter, who was just a week younger than Henry. They plopped her on the rug, and I watched her walk unsteadily around the coffee table, holding it for support while sweeping everything in her path to the floor. For a moment, I thought about the likelihood that it would be another year before Henry could walk. Then I reminded myself how good it was to know that he would walk, even if he took his own sweet time to do it. Surprisingly, I sort of believed it. 
I realized that at least an hour had gone by and nobody had mentioned God or angels or Jesus. Nobody had described Henry as a gift or a blessing. In fact, nobody seemed to regard him as anything other than the baby he was. And then it was time for the cake. After the candle and the singing and the cutting, we sat Henry in a high chair with a slice on his tray. Hugh Ellen had her heart set on a cake shot, but I doubted he would want to try it. We were still struggling to get Henry to feed himself, and he tended to resist new textures. When confronted with an unfamiliar food, he usually screwed up his face in disgust and pushed it right back out of his mouth. All of this was made worse by his cold, and he had hardly eaten any solid foods all week. As Grandma stood by with the camera, I touched a dab of whipped cream to his lip. He licked it appreciatively. I tried a morsel of cake. He rolled it around in his mouth, his tongue working awkwardly. Then he reached his hand out tentatively, patting the mound of cake in front of him. Hooking his fingers, he raked a big piece into his fist and raised it to his face. As he chewed, he gazed up at me with a look of solemn delight, as if marveling at how sweet and good the food of the big people could be. I gazed back at him in agreement. <laughs> Surveys he's done with parents. 
I have to say that um, when my son was born, that really almost all of those protocols were followed, that everyone was quite appropriate, except that this is a motif. Um, there are now a, a number of memoirs um, of parents of children with Down syndrome, and it is a motif that often the person who helps deliver the baby flees from the scene. And so if, if I had any complaints, um, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that no matter how well the news is delivered to you, and I, I really would commend the people who did it, the, um, the, there was a, a nurse who was there with us the entire time. The, the nurse who was, who was trying to um, help my baby to feed, she continued to do that after we were given this news. It acted like there was nothing different about him. Um, but, uh, you know, if you deliver a baby with a disability, um, I guess I would plead with those of you who are, who are going into medicine, don't run away. Um, you know, I, I actually have spoken to medical residents, and I, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about this very meaningful encounter I had with um, obstetrical residents, where I, I talked about this experience, and there was an, a man there who had something of an outburst, like some way into our conversation. He said, you know, we have feelings too. We don't see babies with Down, like some of us have never seen a baby with Down syndrome, and, and we don't know what to do either. And don't, don't you get that? And it actually was very helpful to me to realize that often, and I think this doctor was very young, and um, he simply didn't know what to do. Um, so, so I, I recognize that, 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 that it's difficult for everyone. Um, at the same time, I think um, seeing that man again would have been meaningful to me. And I should say, my obstetrician, she wasn't there. She did not run away. Um, she was the baby. He was born unexpectedly and very quickly. So um, the resident, I, I've never seen again. But I, I highly recommend these, these protocols that are written up by Dr. Scott Coe, because I think they're, they're really wonderful. And of course, you'd want to know about them in advance and not try and make it up on the spot. Yes? Um, I can't even imagine how it would be to have a child that would have Down syndrome. Um, just going by what you're saying, with this sort of feeling of defeat and, and frustration at first. And it's always like a 180 whenever he got to the part where he was enjoying cake, like you yourself enjoying cake, but this is your child and he shares that trait with you. How has your relationship with your son evolved through that phase? Um, how have you guys grown? I haven't personally been touched by someone with a disability, but it was extremely interesting to me. Oh, thank you. So the question was about how from this, these early scenes where um, there was such tragedy surrounding the birth of my son, how the relationship has evolved. Um, and it really is, I'll just repeat what I said near the beginning, which was that um, one of the things that's hard about having your child born, I mean, I think at any stage in the parenting process, it, it would be extremely <coughs> difficult to learn that your child has a disability. But um, when the child is born with a disability, to separate out all of the preconceptions that you bring to that, and you know, part of my work has been to study, you know, how people at large think about Down syndrome, and in, in general, they're not good things. 
um, how to separate that out from your own baby. Um, I have to say that um, parents of children with Down syndrome tend to think, some of them learn prenatally about the diagnosis and others learn at the birth. And, um, and some people actually, it's quite related that they get this news. They tend to um, be happy with the way that their story unfolded. So I am really glad that I didn't know until Henry was born that it was very important to me to have a baby to counteract all of the horrible, like nightmarish images that were in my head about what a person with Down syndrome was and what it would do to my family. Whereas people who get the diagnosis prenatally often feel grateful that they have time <coughs> to prepare. So, um, but the, the other thing that you always hear people of children with Down syndrome, parents of children with Down syndrome say is that um, they, their biggest regret is that there was such a feeling of tragedy and loss around the birth because um, very few of us feel that way once we come to know our children as people. And um, this is where I feel that there is a terrible disconnect in our culture because there is such misunderstanding of Down syndrome and, and what it is to have a person with Down syndrome in one's family or simply alive in the world. Um, because we put so much um, stock in the work of the researchers who are racing ahead to develop you know, genetic tests to ferret out as quickly and easily um, a fetus with Down syndrome, um, usually with the assumption that we should get rid of it. We should just um, rid the world of people. And we, we tend to listen to those scientists um, and take them seriously and not to listen to the voices of the family members who say, well, we have no regrets that this child was born. We're not sorry that they're in the world. So why are we so eager to get rid of, um, of all, a whole class of people? Um, so, so that's so, you know, Henry uh, and I have a wonderful, complicated, you know, frustrating, joyful <coughs> relationship that is much like any other parent's relationship to her child. I try to describe some of those complexities in the book. Um, of course, there are things that are different, and I you know, would not deny that Henry is disabled, and there are certain things that are, are different and more challenging about raising him. But I think in terms of the, um, the joys and frustrations of parenting that I just, and I, I can say this because I have a typical child, so I can speak comparatively, that they're relatively the same, that my experience of parenting is not ruined or compromised in the way that I worried it would be when he was born. Because 
We relate to Columbia University. It seems relevant to comment that about 114 years ago, William and Henry James, founders of the Teachers College of Columbia University, one of those places a little further downtown from here, but which relates to the things that were accomplished here, said diversity is the spice of life. And diversity is the spice of life got spelled out a little bit further when they said, be not the last to lay the old aside, nor yet the first to, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting. <laughs> yet the first to, to try the, uh, the, the new, uh, it rhymes aside, I'm sorry. But at any rate, the James, uh, were they brothers or were they father and son? But at any rate, they created Teachers College mm -hmm. with the vision that certain things weren't well understood, but they could be caught, they could be understood better by understanding diversity. Now the diversity is that 95% of kids don't have Down syndrome and we take care of them the way we've always been taught. But let's recognize that around the edges of what is considered normal are a bunch of things which in those days they couldn't describe at all. Now, now the neurologists have done a heck of a lot of imaging the brain as we had a grandson a grandnephew uh, with Down syndrome, who we got a little bit exposed to it 40 years ago. And uh, there is a lot of progress in doing what you are helping us to do, which is to look at the diversity, which is what is around the edges of normal, but yet we still have to consider it as part of our responsibility. Mm. Thank you. And that, I almost want to let that speak for itself. I, the only thing I'll say is that, um, one of the, the great lessons that I've learned from Henry, I, you know, I was always someone who was interested in life around the margins, and I, I think I knew a lot about how to talk about racial difference and sexual difference and gender difference, um, and not much of it. I think disability is hard for us, and to recognize disability as a valued form of diversity and to, to think about what people with disabilities do, um, not, not just to make our lives harder, but to enrich our lives. Is a, yeah. At a place like Columbia University, where there are many people who don't believe that there's anyone, like, it's only the best and the brightest, it's hard for them to believe that there are students or faculty with disabilities, of course there are many, um, to believe that those differences also enrich the world in the same way that other kinds of human variety do. I think that's a, a tremendously important lesson to bring to a place like this where we sometimes get so stuck on the, the treadmill of you know, the very predictable milestones and accomplishments. We have time for one more. So it's a question about early intervention and which early, you know, which early interventions were the most important to us. So we had four domains. We had speech, OT, PT, and special instruction. I think you can also have a behavioral aspect to early intervention. Oh, and we had family education. 
they were all important. They, at first, I, I mean, when you have an infant, there's just not that much you can do. They all seem the same to me. Like, everyone would bring these black and white cards, and they would wave them in front of Henry's eyes and try to get his eyes to track. Um, and I thought, well, what, what is the difference between a, an OT and a speech? Like, they're all with these cards. And as he grew up, I, it was, this was another part of my education, was to see each of these disciplines unfolding and how it addressed different aspects of his development. So often now, one of the ways they have cut back on early intervention is they'll say, oh, it's an infant, you can have PT, but an infant doesn't need OT, or an infant doesn't speak, so they don't need speech. Well, speech does start with learning to track some, an object back and forth. It's all about recognizing others and initiating an exchange and communicating. Um, and so, so what I learned is that we need all of those domains working together. And um, only in early intervention did we have um, resources to have team meetings where, I mean, it was amazing. They would all come to our home and talk to each other about our child, sometimes for an hour and a half or more, and how each one could work off of what the other one was doing. Um, and, and that also is crucial, that the disciplines be in dialogue with one another. Um, and so it, it really is a, a remarkable resource, and it is just very short-sighted to, um, to cut it off, because you're just going to pay for it later. So how wonderful that we have people majoring in early intervention. I thank you for that. Okay, Rachel, thank you.